Hey everybody, this is Jason Wright from The Oddball Show, and I am here today with Steve Glines. We were talking about some very interesting things like publishing and stuff, and I decided, why not? Let's have a podcast, because Steve has such interesting information. Spur of the moment. (laughs) Super spur of the moment, like super spur of the moment. So, Steve, we were just talking about how you used to Wilderness House, and you were talking about publishing, and and tell me a little bit about your story, just some of your background, how you became a publisher. Well, when I first got to Boston in in 1970, I was writing one story a month for Model Rocketry magazine. That was my hobby as a kid. I learned very, very quickly that writers didn't get paid. Much to my surprise, I was 18 years old. What do I know? But graphic designers did. In order to get the book out the door, you needed a designer and you needed a printer. (laughs) So... They had to get paid. So I learned production graphic arts very, very quickly. Uh, it was not that hard to do. It took some talent, but I had the talent, I guess. So I worked for, for them. I did some writing for the for the New Age Journal. And then I got a job as assistant art director at the East-West Journal, which was a monthly magazine of the macrobiotic community. I did that for a couple of years. Then um, a friend of mine and I set up a business called Colors of the Sun Graphic Design. And uh, we did high-end graphics, logo design, that sort of thing. And my partner was kind of nuts. He really had a lot of talent, but his idea of a, a hard day's work was um, get the letter A and he'd look at it for an hour and he'd take a, a razor blade and carve a little bit off of it. And then we run to the fact, the fact shop uh, or the photostat shop, get a photostat of it uh, with emergency power. So it costs an extra five bucks. And we go get a cup of coffee. You know, <laughs> publishing an hour later, uh, go back to the studio. He's syrup for another two hours, make another thing of whatever. And that was the end of the day. <laughs> so I ended up having to do most of the work, most of the production work. Give him credit. He didn't he really had talent for doing logos. Well, we, so we did that for three years. And then after that, I ended up at Sale Magazine as the art director, which was a, a full-blown internet, well, national magazine, 650,000 distribution, full color. Well, not full color. The color well was um, 16 to 32 pages, depending on the advertising. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I did that for three four years, I think. We did, um, tall sh- I was uh, art director with the Tall Ships. Uh, oh, nice. Nice. Uh, it was a lot of, that was a lot of fun. More fun or more frustration both was when America's Cup was in Newport. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Right. That's that is when I encountered the ultimate in prima donnas. I had the, we were, I I hired a, a prima donna helicopter pilot who would only fly <laughs> under certain conditions. Oh, wow. I hired a, a prima donna photographer who had to get the the, the light and da 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 just right. And the captains of these boats were the ultimate prima donnas. We couldn't get the helicopter couldn't get within five thousand feet of him because oh my god we might disturb his air. <laughs> well, heaven forbid. And of course the the the, the light wasn't right and. The, the air, the, 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 it was a little too choppy, or it was ah, da, 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 da. anyway. Two weeks of that BS, and I finally gave up. And I got a little Instamatic throwaway camera. Um, I took a picture of it, came back to Boston, and hired a, a brilliant illustrator at Gun Studios to do a drawing. It's the only time, to, as far as I know, that Sale Magazine has ever published art on their cover instead of photograph. Um, <laughs> but it was just, I mean, I was running out of time. Yeah. You know, when you have a national magazine, you really have very, very rigid schedules because, I mean, you're printing 650,000 copies. It was a, almost a 200-page book. Uh, this is not trivial. This is not taking it to copy quick, <laughs> you know, asking yeah, for 10 yeah. copies. So the UPS guy would be right there waiting. We had a 5 o'clock deadline on a particular day and we had to hand him the negatives and if we didn't get the negatives to him it, it screwed us up for three weeks yeah and we basically lost a whole month's issue so um and i wish i could remember the name of the artist i hired but he went on to be quite famous and i'm sure you've seen him multicolored um pencils horizontal lines where he did um, a lot of scenes of, of mountains and things and stuff. i'm sure you've seen the, those illustrations yeah yeah um, uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna say ansel adams but that's probably not right no 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 he was a, strictly a photographer this guy was an illustrator oh, okay. At, um, okay there was a graphic art studio in boston there used to be a lot of ad agencies here and they'd hire um it was called gun studios gun studios and uh, they're on Newbury Street, and uh, they had some brilliant illustrators and designers there. And I hired them. It's one job, which was great. I had a lot of fun doing it. But we put it on the cover. <laughs> it's the only time. The only time we just ran out of time. We couldn't get the, photo- the photographer and the, the helicopter pilot and the captains to agree on anything. It was hysterically funny. But um, so you went from macrobiology to sailing magazine. Yeah. And, and before that, it was it was rocketry. It was it all was the rocketry. Uh, 
that was my hobby as a kid. So, so I mean, are you? Do you kind of have like a science background? I mean, I know you're a, a super good writer and everything, but do you have like a science background, sort I of? I went to MIT. <laughs> oh, you went to MIT. Yeah, I, I see, Steve. Uh, I, I never knew. So, tell me um, about how you got involved with like rocketry. Well, that's my hobby as a kid. To be honest, I remember the first book I ever took out of the library. Uh, it was from an elementary school library. It's called What Is a Rocket? It had a bright red cover and a picture of a rocket on it, and I just fell in love with it. And I think it was in third grade, and uh, by fifth grade there was a club in town, a rocketry club. You know, this is, this is after Sputnik, so rocketry was a big deal back then. I'd be surprised if there was more than one rocketry club in all of New England now, but at the time, club was called Fairchester. It was Fairfield and Westchester counties in Connecticut, New York, and there was another club on Long Island that we competed against. Believe it or not, model rocketry is a very competitive arena, and uh, the two clubs kind of cheated a little bit because if you had two clubs from two different states, you could call it a regional event, which multiplied the points by five. So the two clubs from, would become a regional event. Exactly. That's good. And because of that, we, we traded back and forth in national championships. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's like it's like it's like a, a poet giving someone an award and then them giving them back an a poet i'm an award-winning poet hey i'm an award-winning poet too it's like Doug holder and i we give awards back to back and forth to each other uh, hey, uh, give me an award so i'll be an award-winning poet oh, I did? okay we, you have, oh, you gave can you give poet? me an honorary award right now steve so i can put it in my bio i'll call doug he hasn't given one out in a couple of years oh buy an episode where he's like steve if you know this reference this is amazing but if you remember this reference i don't know if you will but he goes uh uh, Beavis, can I have a dollar? And he goes, yeah, here's a dollar. And then he's like, I'll give you a dollar for that cookie. And he's like, yeah, he gives him a cookie. And he goes, uh, hey, can I buy that cookie from you? I'll give you a dollar. <laughs> just give him the dollar. Like, we're making so much money right now. And they're just giving the dollar back and forth. Oh, of course, man. they had to pay taxes on all that money. Yeah, right, right. So so you went from regional rocketry to yeah. sailing. Well, I, so. I got to tell you something, a, a right. little bit more, more about that. Those people that I knew in the bottle rocketry when I was like 10 or 12 years, 12 years old, I think. I was 12 when I went to the first national meet. Yeah. And that was in uh, Wallops Island, Virginia. And uh, one of the guys who, who, he was 18 at the time, and he won the... They had three tier, three age tiers. It was Junior National Championship. Um, I forget what the next one was called, but it was 18 to 21 and then 21 and over. And Gordon won the 18 to 20, 24. And uh, another another guy that I knew quite well won the R&D Championship, Research and Development. Research and we all ended up, uh, Gordon put together a, a basically a, a commune in 1970 in Cambridge because he went to MIT also. And one of the guys went to Harvard. It was bizarre because our place was, was exactly like the Big Bang Theory. We had the guy who went to Harvard, his name was Jay Apt. He ended up as an astronaut, believe it or not. But no only way. like a real astronaut? Yeah, a real one. After the shuttle exploded, nobody wanted to be an astronaut, but Jay did. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, I saw that. I, he made I, it. He made wow. it. He went to the space shuttle four or five times. Um, the last time, what, what nobody realizes is that all that equipment was built in the 60s and was used over and over and over again. And it was really in bad shape. His job was to perfect all the tools that we're going to use to build the space station. I mean, yeah. like you can't just use a wrench because you go this way, a torque, and your whole body's going to spin. You have nothing to lean against. So they had wrenches that went like this and things like that. So he tested all these things. But the last time he was out in space in a you know in a spacesuit, his hands started hurting. And when he got in, he realized the glove had been completely ripped. Oh all my the, god! His wow. whole hand was black and blue. And needless to say, it scared the shit out of him, and he never went up again. He quit after that. Um, so that was Jay. Then we had, uh, so Jay was the astronaut. He's also a little on the spectrum, I think, a little bit. Um, wow. A little bit on the anti-social type. So he fit the Sheldon type. Then we <laughs> had Gordon, who was the, the organizer of all of us. And, and he got his master's degree in aero and astro from MIT. And he just retired a couple of years ago as head of the FAA in Alaska. Oh, my. Everybody in Alaska wants to modify their airplanes. And Gordon's job was to certify them. And he said 90% of these idiots didn't know what they were doing. He rejected them. They build it anyway. They go kill themselves. Oh, Including a guy who was senator. A senator pulled that crap. He got off, flew off in his modified airplane that, that Gordon had rejected and... and was never seen again. Oh. So they've never seen it. They've never found him since. Um, Steve, how do you modify how do you modify an airplane like by yourself like i mean if you have the money you can do anything you want like they did true. things like put oversized flaps but as gordon pointed out at some point the flaps just stall you drop the flaps and the plane drops right out of the air 
Um, they're also putting oversized tires so they can land on very rough stuff. The trouble <laughs> is, at some point, the tires get so big that they won't turn. So you hit the ground at, you know, 100 miles an hour with these oversized tires. You go right nose over. You know, like, <laughs> are these people idiots? Yes, they are. Oh, <laughs> so, so oh he, man, uh, he basically got fired for a while. And then he and an Air Force major, I think, who was also being spanked, they had to police something like 30 or 40 um weather stations on the Aleutian Islands. Oh, wow. So they would they would fly to one, stay overnight, get stoned, fix the fix the thing, fly to the next one. And so Gordon said he spent like eight months totally stoned on the Aleutian Islands. Oh my the Air Force what? helicopter pilot that was basically been given the shit job of going there and they had a blast yeah yeah and then after that that uh senator killed himself the fa went oh gee i guess gordon you knew what you were talking about (laughs) anyway he ended up being head of the faa in alaska that whole the whole region and so he's a good guy we had an astronaut a a, the head of the faa right and and this is all this is all uh the rocket club back Wow, this is. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> can we go back? Can we just talk real quick? The guy, so the guy was in space, and like his hand was starting to like freeze, like frostbite, and he's like, uh, "Oh my god!" Like, well, it was, it was, no, it's being pulled right into space because there was a hole in the palm of his glove. And, and he and he and he just said, "I'm done with space." He's like, when he came up. in and realized what had happened, yeah, the, the, the whole, you know, I mean, the, the glove had basically been worn all the way through. Oh my! And wow. uh, his whole hand was black and blue. Wow, that's so that's nuts. I would imagine, like, you know, I've been on roller coasters, and if they went bad i'm not gonna go back again so i imagine i mean i imagine you're up in space and you're like wow that was a close one <laughs> i'm gonna think yeah. i'm gonna go back down to land exactly so he never went up again but um so who else was at the who else was there in the rocket club uh, well it wasn't it's more than just the rocket club well there were a whole bunch of in, at mit there was a whole rocket society there rocket society they, they were behind model rocketry magazine that's how i got the job actually but we had other people in in the group we had a guy jack nickerson who had just gotten back from vietnam when he, he was there and he had five purple hearts see if I get that I may get this I apologize if I get this wrong but it's five purple hearts wow. two silver stars a bronze star and had been nominated for a congressional medal of honor but the guy who was who had nominated him was killed and couldn't follow it through holy crap Every, I, I mean I grew up with, with a lot of World War II veterans my parents generation and uh, they always told great stories mostly they were in the Air Force they were talking about bombing Japan or bombing Germany and you know None of them had ever been shot down or really gotten thing, but Jack was right in the thick of things. And Friday night, we got a couple of six packs of beer and just he'd start telling war stories. But uh, anyway, getting back to the, the whole thing, so. So I spent two weeks writing stories and cleaning up stuff. I also did a distribution. So we had addressograph plates, 30,000 addressograph plates that we would run. And I'd type up new ones if we needed them. So at Model Rocketry Magazine, what was your first title? Uh, just writer. And then when Gordon had to do his, his master's degree, I became managing editor. Managing editor. Which was yeah. just a title. It didn't mean I, I actually changed doing anything. I, I did a little bit more on the magazine itself. And then you, and that sailing, what happened at sailing? Oh. Sailing. That's why I mentioned Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson oh, was yeah, Jack, a yeah. sailor. He was a guy in Vietnam. And I always liked sailing. I, I had learned sailing when I was a kid. So we decided to buy a boat. So we bought a boat. We put it down in uh, in Hingham at the Multi-Hall Association. And we really couldn't afford it. So we got a third partner. Jack had gone to uh, Dorchester High and he was a, um, he lived in South Boston and Dorchester in that area. Very, very Irish. And um, we took on another partner who was in the Merchant Marine. His name was Bugs Morley. And we figured... He was in the Merchant Marine. We'd never see him. So he could be a one-third partner with no problems whatsoever. Well, the one and only time he showed up, he took the boat out, came back, managed to plug the head up. And I never asked him how he plugged it. I can only guess. But he took the hose off from the head to the, the seacock. And that's where the obstruction was. So he took something and poked it in and poked a hole through the in the tube. <laughs> kind of dumb. So I went, oh, so he, he said, oh, I better row ashore, go to the shop, buy a new tube. But he rowed ashore, met some of his buddies, went out and got drunk. <laughs> Morning because I, I was the only one who had a driver's license at that point for some odd reason. I don't know why. I was the owner of record for the boat, and the harbor master called me up and <laughs> the, uh, your boat's about to sink. I said, can you pump out? Uh, I don't think so. Can you tow it to the dock? No, I don't think so. His idea of a boat about to sink was this much, you know, two feet of the, the mass still out of water. <laughs> so apparently 
the, whatever the the obstruction was was in the seacock and and it pushed the pushed something out and it just blah, 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 fell down <laughs> and it, uh, the mooring anchors were big big concrete blocks so the boat came down and, and got a hole in its hull from hitting the concrete block Holy it cost us 400 bucks to to raise it of course all the electronics was ruined but yeah, we still yeah. we still sold it for i think roughly what we paid for it so that wasn't we came out okay wow. i made the mistake about 10 years later jack called me up and and talked me into getting another boat which was even, <laughs> did you do dumb, it even dumber <laughs> you did it didn't you you got a boat we had, we had two boats <laughs> 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 oh man that's hilarious yeah the second one my wife forced me out of it <laughs> just probably a good move <laughs> <laughs> this one's this one might this one might this second time this might sink so well the second time we did things like we uh jack sailed it up to um to marblehead oh well, nice. actually i sailed yeah. up to marblehead and he was going to pick it up there with a friend and sail it back but the fog came in and so what does he do oh we have a compass we don't have a radio we don't have gps this is like mid-70s so he takes off into the fog and he says i can smell my way back into boston Harbor. <laughs> yeah sure you can jack yeah yeah well he's going along and all of a sudden he says he hears over his shoulder you know naval vessel in a sailboat get out of the way <laughs> He looks over his shoulder. There's just this, you know, a Navy destroyer coming down on him at Holy miles. crap! <laughs> he can't go anywhere. He's a sailboat. Wow. So anyway, he said the, the boat missed him by thirty or forty feet, but he figured the boat was going so fast that it it, it left a, a wake that he could follow for an hour. So he just so, followed the wake into Boston. <laughs> so so he went all the way. He went so far out that there was a Navy cruiser coming at him. Yeah. Oh my God. And then he said he could, and he was trying to smell his way to Boston Harbor. Is what is That's what, what, he what I'm getting at. Yeah, but oh he, he, he followed the, the uh, yeah, followed the wake of the, the boat back into, into Boston because it left, it was going so fast and left a mammoth uh, trail behind it. Oh. <laughs> I mean, this guy sounds amazing. I mean, I mean, five purple hearts, uh, th that's who we're talking about, yeah, right? Five purple hearts and all that yeah, stuff. Five purple hearts, uh, two silver stars. That's a brave star, dude right there. Nominated for the Congressional Medal of Honor. Every that's time he turned around, he got blown up or shot down and he was. <laughs> His, his his job was forward air traffic controller. Oh, wow. So what they would do, he said they they drop a daisy cutter bomb, there's 20,000 pounds of TNT in the jungle to blow, you know, like a, a hundred yard wide hole in the jungle. <laughs> and he said, unfortunately, you drop a bomb like that, everyone for 50 miles around knows you're there. <laughs> um, but they were technically non-combatants. Yeah. So oh, yeah, yeah. They would drop them by helicopter a couple of miles away and they'd hoof it in. He said, by the, but, you know, and they'd build an airfield. But for the two days it took them to build the airfield, you know, the Viet Cong were shooting at them and, and you know, all sorts of stuff. So he, oh. um, uh, you know, he, he told me stories of actually running, literally run into within like a foot of a Viet Cong. And it was a matter of um, how fast they could draw their guns, literally. Oh, wow, wow. <laughs> he wow. said they made eye contact, he pulled the trigger, and that was the first time he, he knows that he killed somebody. Oh, wow, that must have been, but, wow. Yeah, yeah, but he said, you know, it was kind of interesting because they were both they were both soldiers. They both knew I were there. They made eye contact, and the guy basically nodded and said, "You won." Oh, so wow. he doesn't feel guilty. It was just part of part of the job, and he was lucky that he pulled it first. Oh God, it's a the guy was like 130 pounds and it's skinny little runt, too too light for the army, but they took him anyway. Yeah, and uh, he uh, a Vietnamese gave him a, a Vietnamese issued M16, which worked. The American issues at the time jammed all over the place so he didn't even want that uh he got a vietnamese issued m16 he got a, a world war ii type grease gun which fired 45 caliber slugs like a from the same slug as a pistol and that's that's what he shot the Viet Cong with because wow. he said the whole point of hoofing it through there is they'd ambush him and the whole point of an ambush is you make them stop shooting at you by shoot shooting back yeah and yeah. The, grease, the grease gun he said it couldn't hit the broad side of a barn if you aimed at it but it would knock the barn down and yeah. he said it was quite interesting to fire in the general direction of the Viet Cong and see trees falling. Wow, wow. <laughs> and that made him stop shooting at him and gave him, made him an evil, equal uh, status. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. He also did things like um, he ran the tower in Da Nang, which at the time was the second or third busiest airport in the country or in the world. But he was only allowed 10 hours a month in the tower, even though he was he was tower chief, he was the boss. So they gave him alternate duty, which one would think ordinarily would be kind of nothing, right? Well, Da Nang was mostly Marine, it was a Marine base and Marine uh, aviation there. So he ended up doing backseat, sitting in the backseat of a Phantom jet on recon 
uh, flights. And uh, so his job was literally sit in the back seat, and when the time was right, he'd turn the camera on, and then turn it off. So he said there, there, there are two types of reconnaissance flights. One is before the mission, and that's pretty safe. You just fly over it, 300 knots, 500 feet, turn the camera on for 15, 16 seconds, and you're home. You're home free. After the action, they know you're coming. <laughs> so they're waiting for you. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Uh, that's dangerous. And so one time yeah. after uh, after an action, they, they they were going in and Jack said, you heard on the radio from the, the AWACS planes, it's a bandit heading at 12 o'clock, closing at 900 knots. They're right that's in front of them, coming right for him. Yeah. A couple of seconds later, here's bandits at two o'clock, closing 700 knots. Oh, wow. So the pilot says, okay, we're going down. So he went down to tree level, hit the afterburners. And Jack said they had about three seconds over the target. And then... As they went past the target, all of a sudden, just a curtain of anti-aircraft fire went straight up. And of course, you didn't want to go into it, so he went vertical. And with the afterburners burning, they were still accelerating when Jack said, all of a sudden, he felt a thud. I said, what do you mean a thud? He said, you know that feeling on a normal commercial airline when the gear go down, sorry, it goes thud? Yeah, so yeah. It felt like that. But if you're in a, a phantom jet over North Vietnam, that's not a good feeling. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> They were hit by a by a SAM, but fortunately they were going fast enough and they were accelerating that the, the SAM computers couldn't calculate that. So it exploded far enough behind him where the only damage it did was puncture his external fuel tanks. Well, that's good. The plane's intact, except now they don't have any fuel. <laughs> so they can't get back to Da Nang because they don't have enough fuel for that. There weren't any tankers available that they could get to. So the only two, they had two choices. They could ditch in the South China Sea or they could try to land on a uh, on an aircraft carrier. Now, at the time, all Marine pilots had to qualify exactly once on an aircraft carrier. Exactly once. Just now once to land on an aircraft carrier. Just once. Yeah, and then you're allowed, then you get your wings and you're cool. Okay. Now they rotate, so they do it more often. So this guy yeah. had done it exactly once. Well, My. the Navy didn't trust him, so they sent up another aircraft craft and they examined the plane they went all around it a few times and jack said with all of his purple hearts silver stars everything he said the most frightening experience was crash landing on an aircraft carrier going from 250 <laughs> knots to zero in five seconds <laughs> wow, wow. Oh, said, you come you come down you hit the deck really hard hope the, the hook catches you hit the afterburners you go so you hit the deck you go bam when the afterburners go off and then all of a sudden you go bam again when the cable stops you in on 150 feet so so <laughs> well i gotta finish the story he said so then so they turned off the motors both of them their hearts were going like 200 beats a minute they towed the aircraft over to an unused part of the of the uh you know off in the middle of no place and let him sit there for half an hour. He said his heart rate came down from like 300 to 150. So they helped him out of the aircraft and they walked him straight into a shower. Holy cow. <laughs> wow. Do you know what happened to their flight suits? The next morning they gave brand new flight suits. <laughs> uh <laughs> <laughs> and he said the second most terrifying experience was being shot off like oh, that's like shot hilarious. out of a cannon, you know, from the, the deck of an aircraft carrier, where you go from zero to 150 in two seconds. <laughs> you know, it's like bam, you're being shot out of a cannon. <laughs> okay. So this makes more sense now that this guy was super brave, went through a whole bunch of stuff. So like trying to smell out Boston Harbor was not that big of a deal to him at yeah, all. Yeah, he didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like for me, that'd be a big deal. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, all right, no, no, no radar or anything. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll step up for this one. But, <laughs> exactly. You know, this guy, this guy. Wow, what a story! Holy cow. Yeah. Okay, so it's so interesting. We we started this conversation just by saying, you know, you know, this rocket society had amazing people in this rocket society. You had yeah. an astronaut, you had a decorated war veteran. This is incredible. Like, you know, after that you go from the rocket rocket society, the boat magazine to sailing magazine. Are the rocket society people still involved at this point or are we like um no, no, no. Actually, Model Rocketry Magazine went out of business. There was a, there were only like four manufacturers of, of Model Rocketry parts or engines yeah. in the business then. And a uh, conglomerate bought all of them. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Then decided they were going to have a six month moratorium on advertising while they studied the market. Well, we were it. We were the you, only You were the market. market. Right. right. <laughs> we yeah. went out of business. We had no, no revenue. 
So from go, so once you went out of the business, then you went to sailing. No, then I went to I went from there to New Age Journal or the East West Journal, and then the New Age Journal. All right, we need to talk about macrobiology too. Oh my God, there's so much stuff. Macrobiotics. It's it's a, sort of a philosophy. It's a it's a, a food system where you eat nothing but whatever is current right now. Oh. Um, so like right now, even though it's mostly vegetarian kind of diet, is now you'd be eating meat and root vegetables and things like that. You know, tofu, anything that's because nothing's green yet. Yeah. Uh, a month from now, I'd be eating nothing but salad and green stuff and what have you. Um, and it's, 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 everything is a balance of yin and yang, and, and you have to balance the food. And it's a, anyway, yeah. I, when I got to, to Cambridge, I was, I was almost 250 pounds, and then I got down to 140 pounds because <laughs> it was a very good way of losing weight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that didn't, that didn't last. It couldn't possibly last. I rolled over in bed. I was sleeping on a futon, and my bones poked into me, and I went, oops. <laughs> I stop this. I went straight to Central Square to the, there was a McDonald's there and had a, a milkshake and a, a Big Mac, <laughs> which is totally antithesis to the antithetical to the, the macrobiotic philosophy. But oh well, I well, put enough weight on it at that point. I mean, it sounds like right now that sounds like my diet, <laughs> you know, and, and I don't know, maybe uh, macrobiotics might not be too bad of a thing, though, actually. I mean, yeah, it's honest with you. it sounds like a good philosophy. Steve, I think it's a great conversation we're having. Let's uh, take a break. We'll get back in the second segment, talk more about Wilderness House Press. Tell me, Lauren, what's going on with Oddball Foundation and Oddball Magazine? Hi, this is Temmie Lauren from the Oddball team here to update you on what's going on at Oddball. If you're looking for some poetry, I highly recommend reading the poem Hourglass, written by the oddball columnist Liza Zayas. I personally was blown away by the lyricism and imagery in this poem. It's so beautiful and it's so honest, and I really think that you would enjoy it, so check it out. We also have a poem by Barca Saw called The Wait, and it talks about the tragedy happening in India right now. My heart really goes out to them, and I hope the crisis is resolved soon. I really recommend this one, it's such an impactful poem. We also have a poem from our very own Jason Wright. It's called Heartbeat, and it's a very clever, self-referential poem that inspires poets to keep writing. I recommend that you give this one a read as well. If you didn't know already, this month is Mental Health Awareness Month, and here at Oddball, we're doing all that we can to raise awareness about the history of mental health and mental health institutions, as well as raise awareness about resources available for people that are suffering from mental health issues. To do this, for the first time ever, the Audible Foundation will be joining Mental Health Action Day on the 20th of May, along with 500 other brands, nonprofits, and organizations to turn mental health awareness into action. You can find out more on mentalhealthactionday.org. Audible will also be at the 2021 Massachusetts Poetry Festival. If you're interested in attending, you can get tickets at festival.masspoetry.org. And finally, I think you should check out the comic Tron by Jeffrey Fallon. It made me laugh, and I think it might make you laugh too. All right, that was your update on what's going on with Oddball. Now back to Jason with the second half of the show. And then we're back with Steve Glines. So Steve, tell me about Wilderness House. Tell me how that how that came along. How did that come along? Okay, well, um, I've been involved in the poetry community, uh, as you probably know, since the 70s. When I first got to Boston, I, I hung out at the Grolier when Gordon Carney owned it. Ginsburg walked in, and you know, if, you know, if you see somebody who's famous, you see him like in a magazine or something. You go, oh, I know who that is. And then you see, but you see him in real life, and you go, wait a minute, he doesn't belong here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this guy walked in, and it was Allen Ginsberg. And I'm going, who's he? He looks familiar, but I don't know who he is. Gordon Carney stood up, grabbed a copy of Howl, and threw it at me. Oh wow! <laughs> I went, oh, that's who he is. Wow. So at that's that so point, cool. I. I I was just a street urchin. I didn't have any money, but I bought that book. It was the first book I ever bought it at the Grolier. At one point, Gordon was kind of funny. There were a lot of poetic posers hanging around the Grolier. A lot of people who wanted to be poets, wanted to be have the acknowledgement of, of being famous poets, but didn't really write very much. Uh, there were a lot of them, and um, Gordon despised most of them. And he didn't like anybody that any poet after like 1950, I think, maybe even earlier. <laughs> he was he was a real grump. I mean, he was great. I loved him, but he was a real grump. And I, at one point, I said, well, where can I find some real poets? And he said, Stone Soap. <laughs> so really? Jack Powers, he admired Jack Powers. So probably, I don't know, 75, 76, somewhere in that range. 
I first went to a stone soup thing. I didn't go all that frequently in the early days, but later on, my, my daughter got into poetry and we went to stone soup pretty regularly for 10, 12 years. And in the process, I got to meet Harris Gardner and, and Doug Holder and, and all of his friends. And at one point, Doug sent out a, an email to everybody in his mailing list, come have bagels with the bards. So that was downstairs at the Finagle Bagel in Harvard Square. And there were about seven or eight of us, maybe 10, showed up for that. And I haven't missed very many since. We've met every Saturday, rain or shine, Christmas. We met one Christmas Christmas Day, actually. <laughs> and uh, in the early days, we've been doing it for probably 18 years, I guess, something like that. At one point, everyone was complaining about lack of venues. There were not that many print magazines doing just doing poetry. The internet was just coming online. So I said, let's let's do a um, you know an online magazine. And that was the genesis of Wilderness House. Now, where it got its name from is a whole other story. As you can see from the little sign behind me, I'm an avid Rotarian. I've been Rotary for oh, close to 30 years, I guess. And here in Littleton, I've also done general assignment reporting. And when I first got here, the editor called me up and said, well, some big, big wig in town had died and they need, she needed a, uh, an obituary that day. So <laughs> I went, I talked to the widow and, and produced an obituary. At one point, we drove up to the top of the hill. It's about 400 acres in town, a big, big estate. And this big old rundown house at the top of the hill. And she said, you know, I'm going to have to sell this place. And I've often thought that that would make a good retreat for somebody. And I just, that stuck in the back of my head. And they sold it to the New England Forestry Foundation. And uh, we threw a party for the Forestry Foundation when they first moved in. And, and the director said, I've got this problem. I've got this old house at the top of the hill that the town is still charging me residential tax rates on. I either have to tear it down or do something with it. You have any ideas? And I went, a retreat. What kind of retreat? You know, a literary retreat. <laughs> so that was... And the house was, was known, it's still known in town as Wilderness House. It's up at the top of this hill in the middle of 400 acres. So that's where the genesis of Wilderness House. And then for the first couple of years, we had a Wilderness House literary retreat, which really wasn't a retreat as much as we invited well-known poets to come up there and we'd have literally lunch and a chat. That was it. No, no reciting poetry, no reading of poetry, no, it was just hang out with somebody famous. <laughs> I think the last person we had up there was Alpha Michael Weaver, actually. He came up there. I think he was the last one. And then the Forestry Foundation kicked us out because they wanted to use it for interns during the summer. Oh, well. But that was about the same time that we talked about doing an online magazine. So Wilderness House Literary Retreat became Wilderness House Literary Review. Oh, wow. <laughs> been doing ever since we just did our, our 61st issue finished it yesterday in fact a couple of days oh. late but that's okay <laughs> so how can we get a hold of the the 61st issue it's whlreview.com whlreview.com so 61st this is a pretty big one so are these all pieces written during 2020 uh, people, or, or like uh, you know from uh you know mainly from uh, the pandemic era oh, i can't yeah, say that uh, we and do I hate to say that, Steve? A pandemic <laughs> era. Pandemic era, yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, it's quarterly, so these are all stuff that's been submitted since December 1st. Oh, wow. So it's, it's December, December 1st, 1st to March 1st. Very it's cool. Period for the, for the uh, spring issue. So you can check it out, whlreview.com. Uh, Who are some of the author uh, authors or poets in that that we can check out? Uh, let's see. Uh, Lynn Lifshin used to send us stuff almost every other month. <laughs> One time she sent us something like 75 poems and said, pick five. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Wow. And I said, what are you, nuts? We're going to do them all. <laughs> so we did them all. Did you put a book together for her? She gave you 75? No, no, no. We, we put, it was like a 35-page PDF that you could just download. Oh, nice. Uh, nice. We, didn't, we didn't put a book together. But that was the genesis of doing the books. Most of the books that I've done have been people that have we published in the magazine, too. Or bagel bars. But I'm trying to think of who else we got. There was a, a language poet in New York, and I can't remember his name, but he sent us a list of 400 words. And just, I can't remember, again, uh, it with a K, like Kazakhstan or something, or I'm terrible with names. Mm. But um, if I if I think of it, you'll, you, you know who he is. And I just did it in, in four columns, like 12 pages. <laughs> just, okay. Wow. If, yeah. if you want to call that language poetry, okay, we'll do it. <laughs> 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 I don't care. Yeah. The nice, the nice thing about being online is that, is that it really doesn't cost anything to add more to it. Print, uh, print is very expensive. Yeah. And at this point, you know, when we first started out, nobody knew who we were. Uh, we had no name. So it didn't matter. We took almost anybody. You know, I mean, if it was horrible, I'd, I'd say, no, we're going to kind of go fix it or something. But we, you know, the first couple of years, we published some, probably some pretty awful stuff, but along with some pretty good stuff too. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't all bad. Over the years, it's gotten much, much better. This issue is really, I do all the, the design work on it. So I have to read everything. And it's, it's actually very, very, 
inspiring. It's good. Good stuff. The pandemic has actually helped literature. Wow, that's a, that's a really We've good. Gotten a lot more stuff. People, you know, they can't go anywhere, so they sit down and they write. Boredom forces them to write. <laughs> uh, what are you reading these days, Steve? Jesus Christ, just the stuff people send me. I've got, yeah. I've got uh, three manuscripts sitting on my on my table here. I haven't even. I printed yeah. them. That's as far as I got. See, that's so funny. That's exactly um, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm trying to do too. This year, so we're putting out Train of Thought too. Um, we're working on it um, right now, currently, and we want to like get more uh, more manuscripts in too as well. But um, it takes yeah. time to read them, especially if they want you to edit them. Ah, oh, yeah. All three of these. I mean, that doesn't even count. I've got um, where do I have? I have a cover to do and two books to design. I'm not going to edit those except as you know to make them clean up. As you probably know, clean up the manuscript so I can actually yep. import them. Uh, but these yep. other three people want me to edit or at least you know, sprinkle holy dust on them. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly. I haven't, like I said, I haven't read them, so I don't know the quality. Yeah. One, one I know is a is a book of uh, 17 short stories that I'm supposed to edit and figure out what order to put them in. I'm going, no, no. They just gave I, it to you and said, 17 short stories. Have fun. Okay. Yeah, and what order they're supposed to be in? Well, it's I know. Uh, it's it's a very well known author, which is kind of so I feel obliged to do it. I won't yeah. mention her name, but she. Uh, uh, whatever <laughs> uh, yeah i'm sure it's gonna be very good but when someone gives you just you know um i don't know i i feel like i feel like i've always I, I always like give like a manuscript as like nice as possible and then i get rejected as nice as possible i feel like i feel like that's my my mo i got rejected so many times or or maybe i was just afraid of rejection so much that i started oddball just so, <laughs> so i wouldn't have to deal with i gotta show you something I, when I, I tried to sell Poplar Hill, my novel. Oh, I, we should talk about Poplar Hill. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I got close to 200 re rejections and I saved every one of them. Let me show you. Oh, cool. You saved every rejection. Every single one. Oops, where did I put it? That's a beautiful thing. I'll show you the one that I, re I framed too. I'll show you my, my rejection. I moved it someplace. <laughs> Sorry. I moved it someplace. Mine is, mine it's, is from Andrew McNeil. It's about that thick. <laughs> Mine is from Andrews McNeil. They rejected me, so I, I framed it. Um, uh, very good. Because it says, Thank you very much for your interest in Andrews McNeil Publishing. Our editorial board has recently reviewed your proposal, Train of Thought Poems from the Red Line, and they spelled Red Line, R-E-A-D, line, so I'm sure they read it. And at this time, though, we enjoy the concept and the heart put into these samples. It does not fit the needs of our upcoming list for 2020. Regretfully, we will have to pass. You're committed well, to having your work published. We recommend that you obtain a literary agent to represent it. La, 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 la. Uh, so that's that's what I, I got. I finally me. published uh, Poplar Hill myself. Yeah, I just got fed up with it. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm publishing back. most of my books myself, too. Well, I'll tell you some of the funny things that happened, though. Probably talked to 15 agents, and they all had one excuse or another. It's, it's funny. The, the agent business is weird. It's the only field where a salesman goes out of his way to figure out why he can't sell something. opposed <laughs> to, you know exactly normal salesman figures out what how he can sell something yeah, exactly. but literary agents spend all their time figuring out how they why they can't sell something yeah sorry no you're no good you're no, yeah <laughs> anyway <laughs> so my daughter sent me up with a, a canadian because most of the story takes place in canada so i thought that would be a good place to do it but he he set me straight he said well your character is 80 years old there's no sex in the book well, <laughs> uh, you know <laughs> and since you're not a canadian citizen no canadian publisher will touch you because they're all they're subsidized if you're uh, a canadian citizen oh this is a great story we'll take it <laughs> that was the end of that one and then a, another agent who i interviewed it was, it was just a bad choice but it was through grub street and uh, they assigned me an agent who was actually a, a, a young adult specialist my book is definitely not for young adults it's about an old woman who has a heart attack and is dying and is talking about her, her history in nazi germany it's called poplar hill and i absolutely recommend it the book is called poplar hill it's by Steve Glines. I think it's an incredible book. Uh, he's put together. This book took him a, a, a few. I mean, it was. It's, it's, it's a very well done book. So um, definitely check out Poplar Hill. Where can you get that, Steve? Real quick. Uh, Poplar Hill is actually the story is based very, very loosely on my mother's life, and not so much the life, but the stories that she told growing up. So I, I took took that as a starting point and went nuts. She lived in Poplar Hill, Nova Scotia, in 1968. Well, actually, before that, 66. The Vietnam War was getting heated up, and it began 
trying to remind her of what it felt like in Nazi Germany in 1937 and 38. So in 68, she up and left. She moved to Nova Scotia, sold the house in Connecticut. And uh, at that point, I was a junior in high school. I wanted to finish here. So I had an apartment here and I finished high school in, in the States. Never went up to Canada, but my brother and sister did. And they both became Canadian citizens. So did my mom, by the way. But uh, the uh, getting back to the Asian thing. So I, I went to this Asian who was a young adult agent and she only read the first 50 pages. She said, oh, this I can't sell this book. First of all, it's too Canadian. <laughs> And the characters are too quirky. <laughs> and I said, well, did you ever you ever hear of uh, Shipping News? It won the Pulitzer Prize. That's a great, great book, great movie. Yeah, and she said, oh, that's old news. I said, how about Farley Mowat? Have you ever read Farley Mowat? And she said, who? And I yeah. just said, oh, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I, I would I'm wasting my time here. I wasted 600 bucks on this. <laughs> You know, I don't know. I feel like you have a snowball's chance in hell if you're a poet to get a literary agent. But if you're an author, I feel like they say like an author, you can get a literary agent. But if you're a poet, like, good luck. I'll tell you, one reason I stopped chasing literary agents, uh, one of them was very honest with me. And he said, you know, major publishers don't buy books. They buy authors. Yeah. And since I'm almost 70, he said, how many books do you have in you? You know, they're going to look at you and say maybe two or three. They're going to want to invest in an author that can do 10 or 12 or 15 or 20. Yeah. you, they might look at. Me, forget it. I'm over the hill. And, you know, I understand. That's fair. Well, it's, it's not fair, but it's, not, no. I understand why, and I'm not going to fight that because it's, it's, a, it's futile. You know, the, the one guy who really, I mean, a, a poet that really did a lot, someone found his poetry appealing was Bukowski. And Bukowski just started oh, giving his poetry to this one guy. Daniel Johnston was another guy. Uh, he, he passed away, actually. He was a musician. There's one guy who really just believed in Daniel Johnston and became, and became his, like, guy that, like, pressed all his music and, like, everything. But Bukowski, yeah. like, one guy liked Bukowski, and then and then that's kind of how it happened, and it snowballed into, you know, Bukowski and, and City Lights. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, City Lights. Yeah, he decided to publish everybody he could find, and he yeah. had enough. I think sorry, he had no, enough money behind him. He, he, Black he, Sparrow. He, I'm sorry, it was called Black Sparrow, right? Am Black I wrong? Sparrow did Bukowski, but um, yeah. yeah, City Lights did did all the other poets. The Everyone. Poets. Yeah. That's because he he inherited money. City Lights or Bukowski? City Lights. Oh yeah, yeah. Bukowski was just a post office employee. He, he was a post office employee. I mean, he was true to his word, right? I mean, he was he was a gambler, a womanizer. He worked at the post office. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know his ham on rye is basically about his childhood. I mean, he wasn't pulling punches. I mean, Bukowski was who he was. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know? That's why we he's, love him. <laughs> he's, my, he's one of my favorite poets, if not yeah. my favorite poet. I feel like a lot of flowery shit I can't stand, but I get Bukowski. Maybe I don't get him. I bet you he wouldn't even like me in real life, but he, I don't think he would like a lot of people. You're the wrong sex. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Exactly. <laughs> but like, I mean, like, yeah, right. he'd probably get in a fight with me, probably. But, you know, the thing is, that guy, that guy, um, what he did for poetry, he kind of said, like, hey, if you're a normal guy, you might have a shot at this. Like, you can be a, just a, a normal guy at 35. I think he got published his first time at 35. That could be. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. I was in seventh grade when I got my first story published. My um, seventh grade English teacher insisted that we all had to apply for, write a story and send it to the, I forget what it was. It was some some con- national contest. And I got a runners up and got my thing in the uh, Hartford Current. I got to show you something. All right. We're friends here, Steve. So I'm going to show you this. This right here is my first book ever. It's called Soccer. <laughs> it's it's called Soccer, published by Crafton Elementary School. <laughs> called soccer okay my, my daughter did the same thing she did one called um uh oh dear what was it called she's like in second grade second or third grade and she did a little i can't remember but it was one of those things where she made up a word and the teachers gave her flack for it, but i, I remember having going historical the book was called the historical people and the teacher gave me flack for it because it was a made-up word i said you understand what it means right yeah said, well yeah it's a real word then <laughs> yeah i know what it means that's like that's like i had someone edit my i mean i okay so my my uh my teacher back in when I was at Massasoit, his name was Tim Trask. Seriously, nicest guy ever. He shared my my poetry with someone from Journal of a Madman, and there was notes from this person, and the notes were like. You can't use the word transcendent. No, wait, no. Trans, no. You said she's acting transient. Well, that doesn't make sense. You can't use college words if you don't know what they mean. And, <laughs> And I was like, like transient, like like she's there, she's not there. Like that does make sense, right? Doesn't? Yeah. I thought I thought it made sense, like here and gone. But he's like, and, and like one of the notes, it was like on on a note, and it was like, you know, 
this guy's using words that don't make sense. Like if he's asking, if he's trying to act like a college student, use college words. And I'm telling you, man, people can get away with like the most bullshit, like critiques. Oh, of your stuff I, I used to do. I, uh, a friend of mine's uh, grandfather, he lived with his grandfather and he had um, a concise Oxford dictionary in the bathroom. So anytime you go to the bathroom, you just flip a page and look at some, and I used to go there and find the most bizarre words I could come up with. And I remember I would write an essay around that one word, knowing full well that the teacher was gonna have to look it up and would not find it in the in the, uh, oh, that's in the conventional dictionary. Academia and I have never gotten along. This is one I had to take all the way to the principal and then I rammed it down the teacher's throat. The word was bouleversement, which is in the Oxford English Dictionary. It's French in origin and it means Means to kick something over, to knock it over. Bullvestment. And my, the title of the story was the Bullvestment of Crete. <laughs> oh my! How do B O L V E S M O N T? I don't know. Bulls Bullvestment. Bullvestment means to kick something over. To kick something over. Yeah. Brilliant. I'm going to use that in my next poem. I'll try to. So in, in uh, you know the Bullvestment of Crete was about the decline of uh, fall of Crete. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but my daughter, the same daughter that did the book, she was funny in high school. I got called in because they thought that, that she had gone insane. <laughs> <laughs> she wrote a perfectly good story and I read it the night before and it was a good story. And she said, but I have more work to do on it. So she turned it in the next day and I got called a couple of days later and they said, we think she's schizophrenic or something. Can you come in? And, <laughs> and I, I said, show me the story. I said, because I just read what she wrote and it sounded pretty good. I looked at it and you know what she had done? She had taken every single word in that story. I looked up a thesaurus and just picked another word at random. Ah, brilliant. <laughs> so I recognized the story, but it made absolutely no sense I'm whatsoever. <laughs> I like messing with like poets and stuff. I like messing with like poetry forms and everything and stuff like that. And I'm absolutely going to do something like that. I'm going to do a thesaurus story. It's you know what's funny? She, she got even with everybody because she's making more money than any of those people yeah. ever did. She's a, uh, a copywriter for an ad agency in New York City for oh, yeah. drugs. She's a drug copywriter. She, she does <laughs> the black box warnings on, on half the stuff you've, you've seen. Probably stuff half the stuff I take. Probably Steve. Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you have asthma, she one of the places she, she did every single asthma drug you can think of. Lately, yeah. she's been doing uh, cancer drugs, so oh. she, you probably don't get those. Not, not but, yet, anyway. Uh, yeah, no, she's uh, she's a hot ticket. She she's a very good writer. That's um, awesome. Yeah, um, I love this idea. So she so so she took the thesaurus and like she took like a normal story and then just like thesaurus the hell out of it, like every single word. <laughs> yeah, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> that's wow, that's amazing. I wrote that. I wrote that as a kick something over and then like this the source idea those are, those are great ideas yeah really i remember reading the story and going oh my god what the hell is this then what I was it about do you remember i don't remember what that was about no, no. oh that's funny i, do I can't believe i showed you soccer steve that's crazy we wouldn't we wouldn't get that like if we were at like at ba like me and you have actually met at bagels bagel bars when we could be in mm -hmm. person and you wouldn't see soccer you wouldn't see my book soccer that i've had in my bookshelf you know so oh, like yeah. it's crazy this magic of zoom right i mean it's amazing like it's, it's crazy I i'm gonna take more my stuff but it's i have such a mess here i don't know where anything is anymore i know <laughs> i know i just i i mean i've read like maybe three of these no i've read a lot of those books i think I've read a lot of them i actually have a lot of uh poetry books tons of poetry books oh yeah me too yeah me too. Most well of my published <laughs> well speaking of poetry <clears throat> two things one is national poetry month so uh if you're out the, i'm gonna say two things before we close up steve uh and i'm gonna read a poem so one it's uh it's it's april 6th yesterday was april 5th that was the day that's that kurt cobain took his life and if you check out the april 5th project you can see boston musicians doing tributes to any poets musicians who have taken their lives or have died by drug abuse substance use disorder or suicide which is really sad i want to say that this pandemic has taken a lot out of people i think that we're starting to open up a little bit but Mental health is seriously a thing that we need to foster. And in April, it's National Poetry Month. So my suggestion is get out there, write a poem about mental health. Boom. Put two and two together. And you know what? Send it to send it to uh, editors at oddballmagazine.com or team at oddballfoundation.org. And last, I'm just going to ask if you want to be a part of um, the Oddball Foundation, check out team at oddballfoundation.org. We're always looking for volunteers. So 
I'm going to close off uh, this conversation with Steve Glines of Wilderness House uh, Literary Review, an incredible person. I could keep on talking with him. I'm going to read uh, a poem that I wrote called The Survivor in You, and I have it right here. All right. A poem for the survivor in you. All right, Steve. Here we go. Poem for the survivor in you. Look up. If you can look up, you can get up. Les Brown says it's all in the mindset. Look. Look up. Even if you try for the moon and fail, you will land among the stars. Les Brown says that it's all in the mindset. I want to tell you a little tale. There was a man with dreams. Big dreams, so much dreams that he started to lose sleep on those dreams. So many dreams that he started to dream those dreams while he went through his day. So many dreams, his mind started to scream, you are the one. So many dreams, so many dreams. His dreams were peaceful. They wanted to teach you. They were too big, too full, scared a lot of people. He went too far in normal society, made too big a statement. Soon he was labeled, diagnosed, a medicated patient. He spent his time trying to understand his mind. He wrote, drew pretty pictures, went to bed on time. Went to groups, learned he had an illness. Learned he was Icarus, and his mind was a step between brilliance and madness. They told him, take this prescription as it is written, one at seven, make sure with food, go to sleep, watch your mood. So the man with big dreams was now silenced a bit. He had big dreams, but now they were muddled with confusion. His mindset dimmed, his appetite increased, his mood barely went up, the walking deceased. He would go to the groups and would let out all of it in therapy sessions, wondering where the break in his mind was and why he needed medicine. His senses were dulled, his brain erased, memory gone, debased and misplaced. His joy was clouded and those dreams were long fading. He was a walking patient. One day he woke up, read Les Brown, heard it in his head. You can look up, you can get up. Realized these little band-aid medications couldn't mess with his makeup. So though medicated and dealing with the shit that he faced day to day, he began to learn, he began to meditate, he began to speak up, say, yeah, I'm an advocate. They gave me a diagnosis. Can't silence my sound that comes out of my mouth. You with me? Soon there were other advocates and places that accepted him for his billions, for his madness, for his everything. His dreams began to wake up like society all of a sudden did a 360, that his mind was like spray-painted graffiti on the what the world should be. His dreams were now the world's reality, and though he suffered, there was no more apathy. He was going to get it, go for it, and he was going to shoot for the moon. Even if he fell, he would still land among the stars. That fable is true. It's the survivor in you, all of you, not just me, but you too. You and you and you, the beaten down, medicated victim, a diagnosis, don't let it stop you. Be true to your vision. Believe those gifts you got to be true. Let that manic energy come out in your paintings, in your dancing, in your running the marathon, in your painting the sun, in your hip hop, in guitar strums, your snapshot photography, your mind when you speed read, your art, your poetry, your master's degree, your conversations, your comedy. Let that trauma of thinking big and being silenced not turn to violence but defiance. And walk with your head up, because if you can look up, you can get up and even if you shoot for the moon you will still land with the stars so steve thanks for being on the show i really do appreciate uh everything that you do i think everyone should check out the 61st issue of whlreview.com that's wilderness house literary review.com check out the 61st issue and please please check out poplar hill that's a great book from a good good author steve glines and it's really cheap on amazon right now <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey if it's cheap on if it's cheap on amazon pick it up poplar hill right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, once again, check out whlreview.com. 61st issue is out right now. And uh, check out Ibison Street Review. What if someone wants to um, publish with you? How do they get a hold of you? Um, if you go to, to uh, the webpage, at the lower left-hand corner is our submittable connection. Great. So if you want to get a part of a really great, great poetry magazine in Boston that has a great history, whlreview.com, submittable. Are you open for submissions right now, Steve? Yeah, we're open 724. We're, we're now uh, collecting stuff for the summer issue. He's so open that he hasn't time to read for himself because he's got so many submissions of other people's stuff. Well, I also have other editors, so it's I do just the, the nonfiction. Uh, oh. Pedro does, does fiction, and uh, I have another fellow who does uh, the poetry. Oh, okay. Awful lot of work. I still have to read everything to, to lay it out. Yeah. Well, all right. I think that if you're listening and you're still listening, I really thank you. But check out uh, Wilderness House Literary Review. And if you want to get published and you're, you think your poetry is quality enough or your art, or you're not, do you do art too? Yeah, we do art, essays. Um, we even do reviews. We have reviews of both. Oh. Check it out. Check out the whole the whole thing yeah check out the whole thing and if you feel like and um i don't know uh just check out his check out the submittable at wilderness house literary review seriously it's a quality press and i mean what a what a what a great story you know totally bulls am i right yeah <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> totally. <laughs> Wilderness House Literary Review totally bulls of want the competition of um of of the poetry magazines in Boston. Seriously, honestly, the best, the best liter, uh, one of the best literal literary uh, reviews that I've read. And Steve, thank you so much. You're a fantastic My person. My pleasure. Um, and uh, let's let's talk soon. This has been the Oddball Show, and um, this has been Jason Wright. I, uh, my guest is uh, Steve Glines, and uh, I'll see you real soon. All right, take care. That was Season 6, Episode 7 of The Oddball Show. It was such an honor to have Steve Glines on the show. I personally really enjoy listening to him. And if you did too, please let us know and leave a review. We'd really love to hear from you. If you want to support us, you could purchase one of our many cool designs from the Oddball merch shop or donate to our foundation. All can be done at oddballmagazine.com. I hope you have a great week. Don't forget to stay awesome and stay safe. Bye!